and we're going to have a fun time celebrating the Lord, the risen one indeed. We're excited about that. Let's deal with the elephant in the room, if we could, please. Uh, at the beginning of the year, I was supposed to come and speak, <laughs> and I got COVID. It'll become apparent why I air-quoted in just a moment. And then, Pastor Jason was supposed to come and speak, and he got sick. I, I'm not a conspiracy person. I'm not. Also, I spend a lot of time with Matt. Is it possible that he's making us sick? I don't know. We're looking into it. We're, we're, we have a full-scale investigation going on. Just so you know, I, I did not spend time with him all week. You didn't get sick. That's, that's because you didn't preach. Yeah. <laughs> oh, mercy. Well, friends, with that, we better pray. We need to, let's get back on track. Jesus, we love you. And we praise you. We thank you. You are indeed good all the time. And I, uh, Lord, I'm so thankful that we can come together and, uh, and laugh and love you and love one another. And, and we recognize we are on a journey. And in this journey, Lord, we, um, we see that we need to trust you. Uh, we, we need to seek you. And we need to work together, O oh Lord. So use your word today. By the power of your Holy Spirit, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to understand. And show us your ways. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. When we started talking about this series a few months ago, uh, in preparation for it, a term came to mind uh, through the reading of the scriptures, and that is consecrate. And so the idea of consecrate is used to mean to set aside for the work of God. It's used often in things like uh, tools in the temple. So these tools in the temple might be common tools, tools that maybe even everyone had uh, in their homes or at least access to in their homes. But these are unique in that they are specifically and expressly used for the purpose of God. They are consecrated, they're set aside for God's work. And that word is used several times throughout Exodus. And uh, as we began to prepare for this series, I just had a sense of maybe, maybe I need to be purposeful in consecration. But as I, I began to read, it was obvious that this happened multiple times. So it wasn't just, hey, we consecrated ourselves once to the Lord and it's all good. It was multiple times the children of Israel would consecrate themselves to the Lord. They'd mess up. That's called sin, by the way. Uh, uh, they would address it, repent of it, and they would consecrate themselves to the Lord again. That they would be used of God. So a few, a few months ago, I began to practice that in the morning and if you would feel comfortable, I'd really like to start our time with a time of consecration where we take ourselves and we say, okay, Lord, we're going to consecrate ourselves to you. And I'd like to take you through the practice that I have. You can do it other ways. There are certainly other ways of doing it, and that's just fine. But I recognize in my own life that I compartmentalize things, and so I need, to, I need a process. And so uh, every morning when I wake up, I go through this process, and if you'd be comfortable, I would like you to go through it with me, that you would consecrate yourself to the Lord. And so I start with my whole life, 
And then I go to my head, and I would encourage you as we go through this to just point to these areas as we go through. Join me. Lord, we consecrate our lives to you. We consecrate our mind that we would think on you day and night. We consecrate our eyes, Lord, that we would see you at work in us and through us and around us. We consecrate our nose to you, O Lord, that sin would smell like death and that the aroma of Christ would be present as we walk in faith. We consecrate our ears to you, O Lord, that we would hear you and respond in faith to you. We consecrate our mouths to you, O Lord, that we would taste and see that the Lord is good and that the words that we speak would be words of life that honor you. We consecrate our hands to you, O Lord, that we would serve you with these hands and that through us you would serve others. Lord, we consecrate our feet to you, that we would be quick to follow you and to obey. We consecrate our lives to you, O Lord, that we would be a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. With that in mind, let's just jump right in. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 17 and chapter 18. As you're turning there, let me walk through some things with you. We see the children of Israel are growing in Egypt. And as they're growing, it's Pharaoh's desire to abort this growth. That they may take over Egypt if they're not careful. And so Pharaoh has a plan to abort the lives of the males as they're being born in Egypt. But it doesn't work. And God blesses the children of Israel and they continue to grow. And God, with a mighty hand, brings them out. And as God brings them out of Egypt towards the promised land, there is this moment where Egypt is coming with their army and they're putting pressure on the children of Israel. And they're against the sea. There's nowhere for them to go. They're under a lot of pressure. And God breaks the water. And the children of Israel go through this water as they walk in faith, following God. They, walk, they go through this canal uh, on dry ground. They get to the other side to new life. There is a new birth that happens. The Egyptians who were following after selfish ambition, vain conceit, they die in this parting. The waters come crashing down on them. And there is new life. And there is celebration on the other side. And if you've been around new life, you know that this is true. Babies are going to be babies. They'll cry. Loud, really loud. There's whining that occurs. And it's acceptable because they're, they're babies. Uh, I just, uh, my first granddaughter was just born on the 13th of February. I'm over the moon. She's perfect. Of course, you know that. Uh, she's wonderful in every way. And she's a baby. Uh, it turns out that from 11 to about 2 o'clock in the morning, she's not as perfect as I think she is, according to her mom and dad. That's still, uh, I still can't believe it. But she's very loud, and my son deserves that, and I'm thankful. <laughs> God is so good. Uh, hang in there, parents. <laughs> Your time's coming. Uh, okay, back to the story. The children of Israel, they get to the other side and they begin to whine and complain. They're, they're babies. They're new in their faith. So all that they knew was slavery. 
And then God, with a mighty hand, brings them to this new life and they get to this place and they're both thirsty and they're hungry and God miraculously provides for them by providing these streams of water. Oh man, this water is bitter, yuck. But God makes it sweet for them uniquely and that experience that they had is different than the experience that they had in Egypt. And you're going to watch them come to these places of growth where they're going to have to trust God. And then they're going to have to seek God. And then they're going to have to work together. Uh, Watch and see how this unfolds as we walk this together. When I was in elementary school, my teacher showed up and she had this leaf. And on the edge of this leaf was what I thought was some sort of cocooned animal. And I thought, "Oh, oh my goodness, the spider that did that must have been huge to put this animal in this cocoon. This is awful. And she goes, no, 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 no. That's not what it is. And then she started teaching us about these caterpillars. And I was like, oh, okay. Caterpillars are cool. I see them worming around. She goes, yeah, yeah. But they're being transformed right now. And they're going to become this butterfly. Oh, cool. I always wondered where butterflies came from. That, that's cool to see that story. They're these caterpillars. And then they become these butterflies, there's a transformation. And we often use that illustration in Christianity to identify who we were before Christ, like these caterpillars, and that there's a transformation that took place and we become like these butterflies. And that's, that's a perfect illustration. It absolutely is. But I want to suggest another application of that illustration. And that's this. The Old Testament conceals what the New Testament reveals. What I'm saying is the Old Testament shows us these types of Christ, uh, uh, these, uh, this foreshadowing of who Jesus is. And when we get to the New Testament, we see Jesus in a little bit different light. He is like this butterfly compared to this caterpillar. What this caterpillar can only do in part, Jesus does fully and beautifully and in amazing ways. So the reason I'm sharing this is that we're going to see uh, this prefiguring of Christ in the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, we're going to see Christ. And he's like, compared to a caterpillar, he's this butterfly that fully and completely and beautifully fulfills what is seen in the Old Testament. And part of the reason that I tell you that is this, that oftentimes we look at the children of Israel and the things that occurred and go, oh, clearly they're pointing to Jesus. Clearly, how did they miss it when Jesus showed up? How could that happen? Well, because they were looking for a caterpillar. And what Jesus reveals himself as this more complete butterfly, and they, they, miss, uh, they miss the picture often. And sometimes we do too. And that's the challenge for us. So I'm going to start this with asking you, are you on this journey? Are you on the journey from death to life? Are you on this journey that is going to take you into this birthing of a new life? And in this birthing of a new life, are you willing to trust God, to seek God, and to work together to fulfill God's plan? That's the call, and that's what we see throughout this passage. If you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to open it up. We don't have uh, the scriptures uh, from Exodus 17 and 18 up on slides. We do have some supplemental passages that we'll be referring to. But let's just jump right in, and we're in Exodus chapter 17. And I'm starting in verse 1. Let me read through uh, verse 7. 
All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness by sin, by, of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. That's a problem. There were a lot of people. We need water. Remember, there was another time where this happened, and, and they found water, only it was bitter. And, and they found water, and it was bitter, and God miraculously made it sweet. It was good. Therefore, people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirst there, uh, thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Perhaps you've been in those places. Those places where... God is leading you, and you can't see the answer in front of you. It, it just doesn't even occur to you. Let me suggest that what the Old Testament conceals here, the New Testament reveals in Christ. And Jesus is going to identify himself as the, the, the source of spiritual sustenance. They needed the water. They were going to die if they don't get the water. They needed that. We need Jesus. Our, our spirits are going to die without him. Uh, we're going to be separated completely away from God if we don't have Jesus. And Jesus fulfills that. And he, he, he makes some comments in the New Testament that helps us to make this connection. Here we go. John chapter 4, verse 14. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become to him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus has something that we need. He is our sustenance. What we see as a caterpillar, a type, a prefiguring of Christ, we see ultimately fulfilled in Jesus himself. Not just that, but John 6, 35 also says, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus is willing to do something in our souls that only he can do. There is nothing else that can fulfill that. And, and it becomes really clear as we watch the children of Israel walk into this new life that they have, but they constantly go to these places of challenge. And they have to grow from it. And in this case, they do. But not before, uh, uh, but not before the sustenance uh, of the, the, the rock uh, um, opening up and giving water. Let's consider this. Do I recognize Jesus as the ultimate source of spiritual sustenance? Or am I looking for fulfillment and satisfaction in other things? How can I better seek to abide in him and draw from his well of living water. 
That's the question that we have to ask because the reality is we do find fulfillment. We do find satisfaction in other things. And when we do, we often forget to bring Jesus into the equation. So how do we? That's the question that we have to wrestle with. And as we kind of wrestle with that thought, let me paint a different picture for you, if you would be willing. Imagine that you're on a beach. And since you're on a beach, and we're in Minnesota, and it's February, let's just say it's 80 degrees. Is that fair? 80 degrees? Okay. It's 80 degrees, you're on the beach, but here's the bad part. A storm's coming, and you see the storm rolling in. And you start seeing this, the waves crashing in. The waves are getting bigger. And you go, oh, man i got to protect my things. And you look around, you see some stones, and you take those stones, and you start building a buttress. And you, okay, my stuff is safe. But then suddenly, uh, someone comes up behind you. A rescuer comes up and says, oh, wait a minute. That, that stone buttress isn't going to hold up to that storm. Come with me. Let me rescue you. And you go with them. If you'd have eyes to see it, that picture represents the storms that are coming into our lives, the temptations and struggles that we all have. That those stones that we want to build, that buttress, that protect us against that, are, are our past decisions and situations that we've lived through. In other words, we often can trust what's happened in the past. And the children of Israel are in that situation. What has happened in the past? Well, in the past... We've never really had this situation where we've been in the desert and there's no obvious answer. Who would have thought of milking a rock? <laughs> Doesn't make sense. <laughs> but that's what they're called to do in this moment. God in a new way, God in a fresh way wants to meet them. And that's what he does. Uh, their lack of faith in God's provision is revealed in this passage. But Jesus identifies himself as the one who meets the need. Matthew 6, 31 through 33, Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. What is God saying? Well, he's, he's identifying that there are all these needs that we have for sure, and God will meet them. Ultimately, it's seeking his kingdom first, not our kingdom, not our wants and our will. But God uniquely wants to meet us even with those wants and wills. Philippians 4.19, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. So, do I trust in God's provision? And do I have faith that he will sustain me? Or do I find myself grumbling and complaining in times of difficulty? How can I better seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness, trusting that he will provide for my needs? This issue of complaining whenever we come to these crossroads in our lives is something that we have to deal with. I mean, we have to be honest. Just like the children of Israel, it is a problem if you don't get water in the desert. There may be some real problems that we're facing. How are we seeking the kingdom of God in these places? How is Jesus, how are we allowing Jesus to manifest himself and to be the answer to the questions of the real spiritual needs that God is revealing in this? 
on the one side, there's this caterpillar. On the other side, Jesus perfectly and completely is fulfilling the answer to the question. A few years ago, I was at the store and I found a floodlight. Super cool. Whenever you drive into Jordan, you can see my floodlight anywhere. Not really. It's not quite the bat symbol, but it's super cool. Uh, I love it. But the problem is right now is that uh, it's in my laundry room. So uh, my neighbors appreciate that it's in my laundry room, but uh, it has no power. I know what it'll do, but it has no power because it's not connected uh, to the outlet in the garage that it needs to be connected to. But when it connects, man, it floods the street and it's great. And you can see everything down the street, in the neighbor's yard. It's perfect. I love it. But that only happens when it's connected. You and I have that similar potential. But we have to be connected. We have to be connected to God. In this next section, uh, the defeat of Amalek is in uh, verses 8 through 16. In verses 8 through 16, this is what happens. Amalek attacks Israel, and uh, they're fixing to kill him. That's their goal. Moses, who is 80, says, I tell you what, uh, Joshua, you guys fight. I'm going up on top of the hill. Probably a good idea for this 80-year-old guy. He goes up on top of the hill, but he is the main character in this respect that it's his prayers that seem to be affecting things. As he prays, he's holding his arms up, and as his arms remain held up, Israel is winning. But he gets tired, and his arms go down, and Israel starts to lose, and Amalek starts to win. His brother Aaron and his friend Hur come beside him, and they, they join him in this. They hold his arms up so he can pray, and he keeps praying, and Israel wins. Most commentators agree that that is an identifier of Moses' prayer life. See, Moses is moving on from just trusting God. Yep, God will meet us, to now seeking God. If, if we want a victory, we also need to seek God. We need to plug in to God. It's not to say that God is going to give us what we want every time we want it. We'll get into that more in a moment. But it is to say that there is something that happens in us that is more completely understood on a spiritual level as we connect with God in prayer. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 says, Since then then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So, What is being communicated here is this, that in the temple, the priest had to go through a series of things just for God to hear, for the sins of Israel to be forgiven. They they had to make sure they did everything the right way. That's the caterpillar. Jesus did everything the right way and even more. Fulfilling God's plan has given us access to the throne room of God to make our requests known. And in this passage, we see this. That God gives us 
both mercy, we're not getting what we deserve, and grace, getting what not or getting what we don't deserve. Mercy and grace is given in the throne of God as we go before him in specific ways. Jesus says it this way in Matthew 7, uh, verses 7 and 8. He says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks it will be opened. Let's make some clarity. This is not the passage where it means name it, claim it. Blab it, grab it. That's not it. What we're talking about is within the will and purpose of God, in accordance with his scripture, as we seek him, we find him. As we search for God, we, we find him. We have access to him. We are connected to him like the flood light. Uh, that's significant and it's real. And so we have to ask, do I recognize the power and privilege of prayer and my access to God through Jesus? How can I grow in my prayer life and seek the Lord with confidence, knowing that he hears and answers our prayers? For some of you, I recognize you're very busy. And the idea of finding time specifically to pray might, might be really hard. And l- l- let me speak this life into you. Figure it out. I don't mean that in a mean way. I'm not being condescending. Figure it out. This, this is access to God that we have. It may be waking up an extra half hour uh, early in the morning. Cool, do that. It may be staying up an extra half hour at night. Cool, do that. Maybe you're in a place where you go, yep, I actually, my prayer time is morning and night and I love it. Well, let me encourage you to take a next step. Maybe over lunch, spend some time in prayer. We want access to God. We have access to God. Jesus has made a way and, and we can spend time connected to the very power of God. And what we find is this, the beauty of this is that he shapes us. I don't know if you've ever, in times of prayer, started to pray something, and you go, oh, that sounds childish. And then you hear the Spirit of God maybe speak to you and go, yeah, that does sound childish. (laughs) Grow up a little bit. Oh, yeah, I do. And what God seems to be doing in that prayer time is shaping us, growing us, molding us into his will and to his way. Significant and purposeful. So we see that, that God is calling us to trust him, not in our past, but to trust him. And there may be new ways that God wants to deal with situations and things in our lives. Great. He's calling us not just to trust him, but to seek him. And prayer is one of the ways that we seek him. And we see that in this passage. But also, he's calling us to work together. In defeating Amalek, uh, something occurred, or I'm sorry, uh, after defeating Amalek, something occurs. And that is Jethro, who is Moses' father-in-law, shows up. Chapter 18, starting in verse 1, then we'll skip to 13 if you have your Bibles. This is a great passage. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people. How the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Moses, or I'm sorry, uh, Jethro shows up with Moses' wife and two sons. And they celebrate what God has done. 
and it seems to be a really great time. If you skip down to verse 13. The next day, Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this that you're doing for the people? Why do you sit alone? And all the people stand around you from morning till evening. Because that's what everybody wants, is their father-in-law to come, watch and see how they're doing their job, and tell them what they can do better. (laughs) I have a daughter-in-law who uh, serves at the church, who works at the church, and so uh, I'm thinking of you, Lily, right now. Okay. Uh, Continuing, let's, let's skip down to verse 16. Uh, when they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person and another, and I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, what, what you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. This is, I'm going to quote this passage as verse 19 uh, the rest of my life. Check this out. Now obey my voice. That's a great one. The father-in-law to Moses. Now obey my voice, Moses. Yeah, yes, sir. Uh, You are not able to do it alone. I will give you advice and God will be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. And you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men. From all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens, and let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure And all this people also will go to their place in peace. It's a cool passage that uh, Jethro uniquely sees something that seems obvious to him that Moses is missing. Not just Moses, but everybody. Maybe this is encapsulated in the illustration that I heard recently during the Industrial Revolution as machinery started to go into the workplace. There were some widgets that were being created. And and, uh, at first, they were perfect. They were exactly what uh, the industry was looking for. They became the industry standard. But shortly, they stopped working. Uh, they just weren't coming out right. It was like something wasn't, wasn't right. And John, who had been working there a long time, uh, started to go through it systematically. And as he went through it systematically, he couldn't find what was wrong. All the parts seemed to be working. But as I said, it was new equipment. And he wasn't really used to it, though they had been studying it. And everyone had the same conclusion. We don't know why it's not working. And then Bob showed up. Bob was new. And Bob walked through it, and he said, oh, here's the answer. And with a flip of the wrist, it started to work. He said, Bob, how did you know? And he said, oh, this button right here says off, and you just needed to flip it on. (laughs) It was so obvious to Bob, but it was not obvious to the rest of them. It was so obvious to Jethro, it wasn't obvious to the rest of them. And sometimes... Uh, we need a little bit of help. 
Sometimes uh, we need somebody from the outside to speak in. Christ's willingness to accept help and advice from others is prefigured here. And I recognize that maybe even the sound of what I just said maybe hurt your ears a little bit to think that Jesus is looking for help. But let me suggest some things. Jesus could do all things, right? We believe that. But he also called disciples to help, to fulfill the Great Commission. Didn't have to, chose to. Also, he's on the way to Calvary, and he needs help carrying his cross. Certainly, there are some uh, spiritual principles we could pull out of that, but the point is, uh, we see that Jesus invites people uh, into his space to help. Even as a child, uh, Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Proverbs twelve fifteen reminds us the way of a fool is right in his own eyes. But a wise man listens to advice. We need some help. And so we're called to that. And Jesus models that. The early church modeled that. Whoops. When I get ahead of myself, you're supposed to tell me. I I need your help, friends. Did you see how that, did you see that, Tracy, how that worked? I just, yeah, I just used my point and I gave it to, okay. (laughs) Application. And am I willing to accept advice? Am I willing to accept advice and help from others? As Moses accepted Jethro's advice, Do I recognize that even Jesus, who was fully God and fully man, grew in wisdom and learned from others? How can I seek out and learn from wise mentors and peers in my life? One of the questions I love to ask is, who is discipling you and who are you discipling? Jesus' challenge in Matthew 28, go make disciples. The idea in the Greek is disciples who are making disciples who are making disciples. You and I are here because there were a group of people who took that banner and they ran with it, who gave it, uh, who passed the baton on to the next generation. They took it and they ran with it and so on and so on. <clears throat> who is discipling me and who am I discipling? The model of leadership in scripture, uh, Moses appoints leaders. He appointed qualified leaders to help him govern. The leaders were chosen based on their character and abilities. And that, that's a key. Even when we're looking for volunteers at the church, yes, we want to make sure you can do the job, but also we can train to do the job. Character is a bigger issue. Uh, that's, a, that's a harder one. And so we look for character. Do they... Do they love the Lord? Are they chasing after the Lord? Do they trust God? Are, are they seeking God? Are they willing to work together? And then the appointment of leaders allowed Moses to delegate responsibilities and focus on his own calling, on the specific things that God has called him to do. Again, we can look through history and we see all kinds of examples, but let's stick with the church, that there were a group of people who got the gospel of Jesus from Jesus, we're sinners and need a savior. That Jesus modeled it when he went to the cross. That he took my sins and your sins on the cross there. But sin and death couldn't hold him. And he raises from the grave. And he gives life to anybody who would call on him. Even to the point of reinstating Peter who had denied him. 
Peter, who had said, I'm no longer a disciple, I'm a fisherman, is the way that it comes out uh, at the end of John. He reinstates him. They learned that from Jesus. They saw that in Jesus. And then they took that message and they shared it with others. Because the reality is, Jesus taught and trained his disciples. And he gave the Holy Spirit to guide and empower his followers. You and I have the Holy Spirit. If you have received Jesus as your Savior, you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. That doesn't mean that immediately we know everything, we have the right answers all of the time, but it does mean that the Spirit of God indwells us and is calling us to Christ. Like We are drawn to God uniquely because God indwells us. Listen, i got to follow you, Jesus. I don't... This is an obstacle, but I'm going to choose to trust you, Jesus. I'm choosing to seek you, Jesus. And so the church early on recognized that they had to equip the saints for ministry. And that's what they did. They equipped the saints for the ministry that those disciples handed the baton on to the next set of disciples. And Ignatius and Jerome and Polycarp and other church leaders took that and ran with it. And they were willing to give their life that others could have life. How do I know that's true? Well, uh, history records that. Jesus, in handing his leadership off to others to help in this gospel ministry, they had a price to pay. And they were willing to pay it. And that's key. Simon Peter was crucified upside down in Rome. Andrew was crucified in the shape of a cross in Greece. James, the son of Zebedee, was beheaded by King Herod of Agrippa. Philip was crucified in Turkey. Bartholomew flayed alive and either crucified or beheaded in Armenia. Thomas was speared to death in India. Matthew was killed by the sword in Ethiopia. James, the son of Alphaeus, was stoned and clubbed to death in Syria. Thaddeus, killed by arrows in Persia. Simon the Zealot, ministered in Persia and was killed after refusing to sacrifice to the sun god. The only one who, is not, who, who didn't die a martyr's death is John, where he also suffered for his faith, being put in prison. And the church has a lot to say uh, about other specific things that he endured. My point is not their death, but their life. And that compared to what they had, they were willing to share it and give it to others. They knew that it might cost them their life. They saw their Savior die on the cross, raised from the dead. They saw him in in the midst. They saw him, and it was worth it. And it's worth it for us today, too. The Old Testament conceals what the New Testament reveals and What we see as types, as foreshadowing, prefigures of Christ is a caterpillar compared to who Jesus is. But Jesus more fully manifests himself in the New Testament and I would suggest even to us today. So as the worship team comes, I'm going to ask you uh, a few questions. A little bit different than the ones on the screen, though you're, you're welcome to walk through those. But here's the first question. Are you on the journey? Or are you still stuck in sin and death in Egypt? Are you on the journey, the journey of deliverance of new life in Christ? If not, 
let me encourage you to surrender to Christ. We can't save ourselves, uh, just like Israel couldn't. God, with a mighty hand, had to save them, and that's exactly what Jesus has done when he gave his life. So we call on the name of the Lord, and that means confessing our sins. Lord, I'm a sinner, and I need you to save me because I can't save myself. It's repentance, turning away from that sin and turning to God and asking God to indwell you. We sometimes talk about the sinner's prayer, and the sinner's prayer is fine, but it's really just a line in the sand where we're saying, I am taking the step of faith, and I'm trusting you to save me. And so we do. I want to encourage you to get on the journey, to trust God. There may be some things that are happening in your world that you can't depend on the past. Trust God. He may have some new things for you today. Seek God as a means of prayer, of uh, yielding yourself to the Lord. A finding time of intimacy with the Lord. And then to work together. We're in this together. Friends, we're going to spend eternity together. Might as well get used to liking each other now. We get to work together. Where might God be calling you today? As we prepare our heart for communion... There are four stations in the room. As followers of Christ, we're called to participate because we're remembering what the Lord has done. In this participation, we're reminded to examine our hearts. And so we might say something like this, Holy Spirit, would you illuminate our hearts? If there is any wicked way in me, any darkness, would you help me to see that? That I could confess that as sin, repent of it, and follow you. And then after you've done that, you are welcome to get both the bread and the cup and return to your seat. And at the end of this next song, we'll participate together. Let's pray.